good to be back with you this morning. We're always catching up online when we're not here, by the way. Don't worry, you can always test me on the homework of what's happened on the weeks we're not here. But it's great to be back uh, with you in person and really uh, excited to be able to close the series that we've been working through on the, the Book of Esther over recent weeks. I'm not sure about you, but um, the Book of Esther, to me, I'm just amazed no one's turned it into like an epic film because of the amount of drama in those few chapters. Um, and I think there's, there's so much to absorb in those few chapters, and there's so much to admire in Esther as a person too. But for me, the, the thing that stands out most uh, with her is how courageous she was. And so the, the title I've given my sermon this morning is Equipped for Courage. And I want to explore that theme just for a few minutes. Because I think what, what the, the story of Esther gives us is something of a template of how we should maybe behave and how we should act when we're seeking to be courageous in our lives. And if you haven't been here or you haven't checked in online over the last few weeks, um, I'll do a quick recap of, of the story of Esther, um, just to bring everyone on the same page. So at the beginning of the, beginning of the book, we're, we're introduced to King Xerxes, who is the king uh, over Persia at the time. And we, we hear that he's been throwing an extended feast, uh, 180 days of celebration to, to glorify himself, basically, to show his splendor, to show his wealth. And... During this 180-day feast, he, he falls out with his wife, the, the queen. She won't do something he wants her to do. She won't parade herself in front of uh, his friends. And so, uh, as a reasonable husband, apparently, he just casts her aside as a result of that, which, uh, which seems a little, a little bit harsh. But, but that, that stems the beginning of the process of finding a new queen. And his officials search the land for the most eligible bachelorettes. And amongst those we hear is, uh, is a lady named Esther. Esther's a, a Jewish orphan who we're told is, has been raised by her cousin Mordecai in the absence of parents. And she enters this process of uh, being considered to be the next queen and ultimately is the one who wins the favour of King Xerxes. Um, but she, she keeps her Jewish heritage a secret. So the king isn't aware of that at the time that she is appointed queen. We're then introduced to a man called Haman, who we're told is, uh, is a man who's in favor with the king. He's one of the nobles, and he has been um, promoted through the ranks to a place of, of real authority, a place of such authority that even the, yeah, the royal officials would bow before him when they saw him passing. And we read that Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin, would, uh, would sit at the king's gate, which was the gate that separated the palace uh, that the king resided in from the rest of the royal city. And he would sit there to, to keep tabs on Esther, to make sure she was being looked after, to make sure she was okay. And as Haman would pass and the royal officials would bow, uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow. As a Jew, he felt that the only, the only person he should bow to is God himself. And so he wouldn't bow to Haman, which angered him, as we've heard in previous weeks. And so he sets out not just to destroy Mordecai, but to destroy all of the Jews living in Persia. And worryingly, because of his position of authority and the, the close connection he's built with the king, the king signs off a royal decree to allow this to happen. Esther's unaware of this at first, but Mordecai sends word through her officials and appeals for her to help on behalf of the Jewish people. And we'll pick the text up there in, uh, in chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses 9 to 16. It says, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman 
who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they will be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, uh, for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast just as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so the main thing I actually want to talk about this morning is, is fasting. Um, because I think we could, we could read the book of Esther with all of the drama um, and all of the, uh, the various plot lines that are being worked through as we read through the chapters. And I think we could miss one of the most important takeaways, which is what Esther's response is when she's faced with the most perilous of situations. And just so we all fully understand the, the magnitude of what she was staring down the barrel of here, She's obviously dealing with a man that we know has previous for, for casting his wives aside at the slightest grievance. The king is within his rights, or was at this time, to, to call the queen whenever he wanted to spend time with her and to ignore her for as long as he wanted to ignore her for. And we're told here that it had been 30 days since the king had even requested to spend time with Esther. So hardly feeling secure in that relationship, I would imagine, at this point. She's got, got to, to now break, break the law. She's got to break the code of conduct and without being welcomed into the inner court where the king is sitting, which as we read in the text there is, uh, is a risky thing to do because if the king doesn't take that well, the, the outcome is death. She's then got to at some point let him know that she's withheld an important secret from him, which is that she is, she is a Jew. He didn't know that. And, uh, and in addition to that, she has to go up against the man that he has promoted through the ranks as his golden boy and, uh, and go into direct conflict with him. So to say that this was a precarious situation for Esther would be the understatement of the century. And when faced with that, what I think is amazing is that her initial reaction before she does anything else is that she's going to pray and she's going to fast and she's going to ask others to do the same. Which suggests to us that as a courageous person, when seeking to be equipped for courage, Esther thought that was the most powerful thing she could do in that moment. Not rely on any of her competencies, her skills, her traits, but actually before anything else, to pray and to fast. And the Bible is a regular advocate for fasting, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we'll get to in a minute. But it's really interesting because in, in modern society, fasting is trendy again. I'm not sure if anyone has picked up on this. If you're, if you're into health or fitness, if you're interested in weight loss, anything like that, then you'll have struggled to avoid the, the topic of fasting over recent months. Because there's a lot of content in the media, in social channels, from fitness gurus about fasting right now. Particularly intermittent fasting is a phrase you might have heard, which is things like the 16-8 the model, where you eat all of your food in an eight-hour period in the day, and then you fast for 16 hours, which supposedly replicates how our ancestors would have lived when they were hunting and, uh, and feasting and in that kind of rhythm. 
And there, there's, there's pretty strong belief among a lot of health experts that intermittent fasting is really good for us, that it's good for improved fat loss, for higher energy levels, for improved brain function, and more. Um, which all sounds quite good, doesn't it? You know, less fat, more energy, better brains. I think we'd all probably sign up for that. And for that reason, a lot of people I know have at least dabbled in intermittent fasting in, uh, you know, in the last year or so because they believe there is something good in it for them because modern secular society is telling them something is good in it for them. But I wonder if we, as Christians, pay as much attention to the, the biblical context that we're given for why it's so good for us. And if I'm honest, I think that, for me, fasting has been something that I've done when we've done it corporately as a church, and I've done in the context of like wider initiatives, but I'm not sure I've ever really embraced it in the way I should have done at a personal level in my faith. And I, I found that really challenging recently. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to, to preach on this topic this morning is because I, I decided to do a, a week-long fast a few weeks ago, and I, I really felt the amazing benefit of doing it, and I want to share some, some thoughts around that and some experience from that. But, but what initiated it for me was, was actually a period at the start of this year where I, I could just sense in myself that like, pressure was rising a little bit. You know, work was quite stressful. Our youngest, Finley, had just decided that he doesn't sleep anymore. So we'd had, you know, weeks on end with uh, seven, eight, nine wake-up calls in the middle of the night. We were both exhausted, my wife and I. Um, I was actually staring down the barrel of a week of single parenting as well because Maz was about to fly off to the US with work for a week. And um, you, know, you just sometimes start to sense in yourself that you're seeing behaviors that aren't normal for you. You know, you're less patient, you're more snappy, you've got a shorter fuse, all that kind of stuff. And I just really felt like I needed a bit of a spiritual reset with God that week. And so I decided I was going to do, going to do a week-long fast. And, and what I did was I, I, I had dinner, and then I fasted 24 hours, then had dinner, and, and did that all week. So one meal a day through the week, but basically 24-hour fast at a time. And it was a really amazing experience, and, and I will share some of that, that insight in a little while. But, but even in my own life, I recognized that I needed to do that, and I recognized that I hadn't given this spiritual discipline the level of focus and attention it deserves in the past. And, and I do think perhaps in the church today, corporately, I'm not just talking about one church, but I think corporately in the church, I'm not sure we give fasting the same level of attention and credit that perhaps previous generations did, and perhaps in biblical times they did. And I'd probably go as far to maybe even make a fairly bold statement this morning, which is that if I was a betting man, I would probably bet that there are more people in this room right now, and potentially listening online, that in the last year have done intermittent fasting for physical health reasons than maybe fasted in the, in the context of spiritual discipline. And the reason I think that is, is partly because of this trend. It's really trendy right now to, to fast for health reasons. Our Prime Minister, Ricky Shunak, about apparently fasts from 5 p.m. on a Sunday to 5 a.m. on a Tuesday every single week as part of his health regime. So even the Prime Minister's up to it. Um, but also, I read a couple of studies that were really interesting. Uh, one was from the US a few years ago uh, amongst the Christian population in the United States. And the outcome of that study was that the vast majority of Christians in the US no longer think fasting has a, an active role to play in their faith. A really, really small number. And in contrast, there was a study taken last year by the Independent, the same thing. And that's quite concerning, and it's something we need to be, we need to be careful about. 
Esther thought this was the most important thing she could do. And so what I want to do this morning is help us understand a little bit about the, the kind of biblical principle of why it's important. And uh, if you're new to church and if you, you know, if you maybe haven't heard any teaching on fasting before, then some, some quick backdrop is that the, the word is mentioned, the word fasting is mentioned very regularly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 70 times in all. Uh, and both the Hebrew word in the Old Testament and the Greek word in the New Testament, both are very explicit that fasting is about the abstinence from food as opposed to anything else. Um, there are some really high-profile fasts in the Bible, a number of them, but possibly the most high-profile is Jesus himself, who fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And, and in most cases, a fast is initiated by an urgent need for God to move. As we see with Esther here, she is in urgent need of assistance from God, so it's like it's a response to the urgency of the situation that she's in. And some of the, some of the kind of context that we see for that are deliverance from danger, which we see with Esther, for help in time of sickness, for, for guidance, for equipping, which is what we see with Jesus, really. He's being equipped in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Um, sometimes it's, for, it's on behalf of someone else who's in oppression for the deliverance from that oppression. And there's a number of other reasons too. Um, but we also see some examples where fasting is just used as, as more of a regular part of a worshipful lifestyle. So in the book of Luke, we read about a, a prophet called Anna, who is 84 years old, and, we to, and we're told never leaves the temple. All she does all day is she worships, she prays, and she fasts. And so what that should suggest to us is that if we are in need of God to move in our life today, if we need breakthrough, I know we've been talking about breakthrough now for weeks, if we're in need of breakthrough in our life, if we're in need of courage to make a decision or to step into something in our life, or if, frankly, we just feel like we need more intimacy with God, then praying and fasting, biblically, is an amazing principle for us to embrace. And I think sometimes we, we kind of want God to do the thing, but we don't use the stuff that he's given us at our disposal. So sometimes we can say things like, oh, I'm really struggling to hear from God in this season of my life, but we haven't even opened the Bible yet, which is the living word of God. Sometimes we might say, I feel really lonely at this point in my life, but we haven't embraced the, the community of, of the church that God has put around us. And sometimes I think we can say, God, I really want you to break through in this situation for me. I really want to see breakthrough. And yet we haven't prayed and fasted, which is something the Bible talks so regularly about when we're looking for that period of breakthrough. So I just want to highlight three really quick things that I think should, um, should encourage us to, to maybe incorporate fasting into our more regular worship lifestyle. Three reasons why it's important. And the first, I think, is quite a practical one. And it's, and it's literally when we decide that we're going to fast, in that period, whether it's a day, a week, a few hours, we remove one of the big distractions that might take time away from us being able to focus on God. And I might be at the extreme end of this spectrum, okay, because I think about food you know, every five seconds. Um, so for me, this was really tangible when I did my, my week fast a few weeks ago, was that the time just that is removed from thinking about, planning, fetching, cooking, uh, reheating, whatever you might be doing with your food through the day, you take all that time back and you go, I'm going to use that time to pray and to focus on God. And actually, the difference is really tangible. And so I, I did quite a conservative calculation, which is like when I'm in the office, I maybe take 20 minutes at lunchtime to walk and get food and walk back to the office. 
I might take 10, 15 minutes eating that food whilst chatting to colleagues. I might spend another 10, 15 minutes throughout the day getting a snack or chatting around the fruit bowl or whatever it might be. Really, really conservatively, I'd say I got an hour back every day, which was then focused on prayer. And I, I dare say that if all of us found an hour more every day to pray, by the end of that week, we'd feel a lot closer to God than we did at the start. And that's just a real practical element of fasting. It's buying ourselves time back. It's removing distraction. It's going with the time I was going to be doing that thing, God, I'm actually just going to pray and I'm just going to wait on you. And so that is the first one. The second thing about fasting is that it involves discipline. And discipline is really good for us. We're called to be disciples, so the clue's in the name, that discipline is, is good for us, it's beneficial for us. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul refers to, to making our bodies our slaves. And what he means by that is that we have to take control of the things that we do. Um, and we're called as Christians to take control of our, of our bodies, of our tongues, even of our minds. And so discipline is something that, you know, as a general rule, is really, really good for us. And sometimes just the act of committing to do something hard and following through with it is really beneficial in any sense, but especially in a spiritual sense. And I think what I found with um, what I found with fasting is that I think the reason I haven't pushed into it as much as I should have done in the past is because, like, I find it hard. And that sounds pathetic, doesn't it? But it's true. Like, it's something I find difficult. I like my food. My wife will tell you I'm always hungry. And so the thought of going for any extended period without food was quite daunting for me. And I have to admit, I was nervous at the start of this week when I committed to, to doing that. And I, I thought you might appreciate, I took a bit of a diary over the first few days just to, to give a bit of a sense of how I was feeling. So on day one at 9am, so I'd eaten the previous night, it was 9am, uh, I wrote, I'm already unthinkably hungry. And then at 12 o'clock, so three hours later, I wrote, I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> but then by day two, and, and it was this, this quick actually, by day two at 7pm, by which time I'd gone 23 hours without food that day, I actually wrote, my hunger's starting to plateau. And then on day three at 7pm, which was 22 hours after my last meal, I wrote, I actually could skip dinner tonight. And to me, that was amazing. It, it was amazing that I could, you know, even in three days, go from thinking that, you know, having lunch at five minutes past 12 would have been impossible <laughs> to going, actually, I could have gone this whole day without eating. And that is because there was discipline involved. And I think that, you know, discipline, our bodies adjust, first of all, like our bodies do chemically adjust to stuff like that, and it gets easier. But, but I think especially in a spiritual sense, when we discipline, we invite the Holy Spirit in to come and show us what's possible under hardship. And so, like, there was a period in there that was really, really difficult. And I think if I'd been doing it for any reason other than because I was praying and fasting, I would have given up. There's no other reason that I would have gone without food for that long willingly. But what happens in that moment is you allow God to draw near and you allow him to show you that he supports you through hard things. And even in something relatively insignificant, like going a day eating less food, compared to some of the problems we deal with in our everyday lives, it's pretty minor, isn't it? But it's just a little, a little indication of the God that we serve, that even in something supposedly insignificant in comparison, he draws alongside and he strengthens us and he's with us through it. And I was really, really aware of his Holy Spirit in those hours when physically I was feeling really hungry, but spiritually I probably felt as nourished as I'd felt in several weeks. So that discipline is just really, really good for us. 
And then the third thing, which is kind of linked, is that there's sacrifice involved in fasting. We're giving something up. We're choosing willingly to, to deny ourselves something for a period. And Jesus said in Mark 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whenever we find little ways in our life just to embrace sacrifice, what we do is we point back towards the ultimate sacrifice. And what it should do in us as Christians is it should be a little flicker back to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. And as Christians, we believe what we're taught in the Bible, which is that Jesus, God became man, took on the cross, died on the cross in the ultimate sacrifice for every one of us. And he died in the name of all things that separated us from God. The biblical word is sin, all the wrongdoing, all the imperfection in mankind. He took it on himself and on the cross, he, he died in the most excruciating sacrifice for us. And as we give up food for that period, for those few hours, for that day, whatever it might be, what it does if we engage ourselves properly in it is it shifts our gaze from where we are right now to the ultimate sacrifice that was paid. And it takes us from a place of maybe being aware of the problem that we're fasting for to going, actually, this is the person we come to for support. This is the person who's got our back, the one that paid even the ultimate sacrifice for us, that didn't withhold even his own life from us. As we embrace tiny little bits of sacrifice in comparison, it should help us shift our gaze from the thing that we're struggling with today to the one who overcomes all, even death on a cross. So they're the three things. We buy ourselves capacity, we discipline ourselves, and we embrace sacrifice when we fast. And for Esther, that was the thing she thought was the most important and powerful thing she could do when staring death in the face. She created that space. She disciplined herself to become more aware of what was possible and to welcome in the presence of God. And then she shifted her gaze towards the one who was with her through it all. And so today, if we're in need of courage, if we need courage to make that step, if we need courage to, to, to kind of push into that next season, whatever it might be, if we need breakthrough in our life, if we've been praying and praying and praying and praying and that breakthrough hasn't come yet, or if we simply just feel like we're a bit distant from God, we're a bit disconnected and we want to be closer, we want to be more intimate with him, then we could spend part of our next week far worse than commit to a period of prayer and fasting. You know, I think that there's a danger with the Bible having been with us for as long as it has, that sometimes we can pick things that we don't quite understand or don't quite make as much sense in the very immediate current climate and devalue them. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we can make as a Christian is to take bits and go, we don't think that bit's relevant anymore. It's a hugely dangerous way to live as a Christian. Every single thing written in the Bible has got such huge value for us if we just take the time to get under the surface and understand it. And it turns out that fasting might just be good for us physically. Um, but it's taken nutritionists all this time to figure that out. When since biblical times, we've been taught that spiritually this is an amazing thing for us that has so much good in and so today, if, you are, if you're needing breakthrough, then as always, there's an opportunity for prayer and there'll be team available wearing lanyards who would love to come alongside you after the service. But 
But I thought today that, you know, the main takeaway for me over the last few weeks, and I hope for you after this morning, will be maybe in this week to come, we just commit to a period where we're going to pray and fast. And whatever it is we need to bring before God, we bring it before him in that way. And perhaps for you, that doesn't have to be a week-long fast. Um, like I say, it was, it was tough at times. I'm not going to do it every week, that's for sure. But like, maybe it's just a few hours one day. Maybe it's half a day. Maybe it's a day. But pick a time, and I'd say try it. And just see whether at the end of that period, you feel like you are more connected to God than you were before it. Because I, I really believe you will be. Because it's a biblical principle. It's something endorsed in the Bible. It's something God is for. And it's so good for us. So that's my encouragement this week. Find some time to do it. It was, the, it was the thing Esther thought had the most power before she stepped into the inner court. And what a shame it would be if it became something that we neglected in our lives and became neglected in our church. Amen.